an age where the assumption is is that to, the way to get ahead is, if, if you want to get ahead, is by looking out for number one. Uh, we, uh, you know, I don't know how many of you have this, in, this feeling that I do. If a stranger calls you on the phone about dinner time, calls you by your first name, and you don't recognize who it is, what do you immediately think? Telemarketer. That's exactly what I think. And you know what I usually do unless I recognize it real quickly? You know? That's my deal. I'm not really, I'm kind of rude to telemarketers. Okay, I'll just admit my sin. I don't know if that is a sin or not, but that's just the way I deal. Because my cynical nature, because in our world, he's going to tell me something about some incredible offer he wants to give to me. And I know there's going to be strings attached. I know it's not really going to be as incredible as it sounds because so often that's what happens. And we have all this, everyone's selling something, spitting something, hyping something. Everybody has some angle, it seems like, in our world. But Jesus says the people in the church are not to be people who hype the world, who have a spin on something. We have a purpose in the world. And actually he told a story that's, that's kind of an analogy, a story that he told actually in four different places in the New Testament. He told it in Matthew, he told it in Mark, and he told it twice in Luke. The same basic analogy he uses, and we're going to look at that analogy this morning, this story, this parable. We're going to look at more the analogy part of the parable because he talks at more extreme in, in Mark and in the Luke passage. We'll look at the Matthew passage because right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after he, or actually kind of the early part of the Sermon on the Mount, when he's talking of the Beatitudes, which is one of the things we're going to be looking at this fall, is he, he says this in Matthew 5.14. He says that you and I are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. And then he says in verse 15, No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. This same analogy is told, like I said, over, over in Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8 and Luke chapter 11. These same almost exact words are used in different contexts to say some things about the importance of us being a light in the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. The reality is, is that a watching world will not be impressed by how big our attendance is at church, by how our services are, how many people are on our staff, or if we even we got a cool building. The world is not impressed by any of those things. I mean, those things are sometimes important, but Jesus says there's one force in the world, one force that still has the power to turn heads in a world that's gone from cynical, from, that gone, it's gone cynical from the slick, relentless self-promotion. He said there's one thing that will still turn heads in this world. And the one thing that will turn heads in this world is this. When individual human beings deliberately sacrifice their time or energy or resources to help somebody else for no strategic reason at all. When somebody crosses an ethnic barrier, a cultural barrier, a generational barrier to build a bridge where the world is just filled with walls and fences. When an outsider walks into a prison to reach somebody that he doesn't know, when an educated person sits down to tutor a little child that he or she has never met, when a person who owns a quiet, comfortable home picks up a hammer to build a home for somebody who doesn't have one, when a young, healthy, busy person walks into a facility and sits down quietly beside the bed of an elderly person who everybody, well, everybody, who everybody else in the world has forgotten, when somebody on purpose reprioritizes his or her, her own affluence or security or comfort or ease for the sake of enhancing the life of somebody else. 
Then a cynical world sits and takes notice. Jesus said this. He says, maybe there's, there's, there's one thing here that I need to pay attention to. The world says that when, we, when these things happen. And this was Jesus' sole plan for his followers. He didn't talk a lot about services. He didn't talk a lot about buildings. You know, matter of fact, from a church perspective, he didn't really talk about organization too much, which causes us all kind of grief among churches. But he did talk about this one thing. He bet everything on one strategy. And it sounds so simple because in verse 16, after these next, verse 16, he says this. He says, in the same way, he's the same way to be the light on the hill. He says, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. He said, the simple plan is this. You let your light shine, the light that's reflected from God upon you, so that ultimately God will be known. That's his plan. That's plan A. There is no plan B. That's plan A. That is, in fact, um, what happened when Jesus left the scene because his followers had virtually no money, no influence, no power, no soldiers, no weapons. They had none of the things that, that meant power in that day. It was a very small following of people. It was so small at first that it was seemed that it was unlikely to do anything or make any great impact on the world, but it had a community of followers who understood and who existed in the world and they existed to serve one another and to serve others. And in this community of, of early followers, the rich voluntarily let go and gave up what they had to help the poor. And people who had been separated because of and hostile toward each other, slaves and free, male and female, Jew and Gentile, they became like brothers and sisters. And they were reconciled and they were kind and they were gracious, not perfectly. But that was the intention of their lives. And no one had ever seen people act like this before with anyone. And orphans and widows got cared for and honored and celebrated. And the dynamic was so striking that one of the early persons, early opponents of Christianity, a guy named Seleucus, wrote this about the Christian community. And he wrote it as a slur, but it really was a compliment when you think about it. He said this about an opponent of Christianity. He said, they, the Christians, continually attract worthless and contemptible people, idiots, slaves, poor women and children. He thought that was a slur, but that was the greatest thing that about Christianity is that it drew people that, who were the marginalized people in the world, the people that were forgotten many times. And that was the power of Christianity. And so the good deeds that were done by the men and women in that early church were so radiant that they simply overwhelmed the world. And we know the history of what happened in the, that group of small group of believers and how it changed history and because of what Jesus had meant through, uh, to them and through them. They had no buildings, no influence, no money, no power, but you couldn't keep people out of, their, of, the, of that group. And it drew people like a magnet. For 2,000 years, that single image that Jesus said here, uh, that picture of a shining city set on a hill where the light is seen could not be hidden. And so I want to ask you a question today. I want to ask you a question. This is about the future of Great Oaks. This is about your future. If Jesus meant that for the early church, if he meant for us to be a city on a hill that our light shine, can we be that kind of church? Or do we, we remain, you know, and I'm not saying we don't have a light on a hill, but are, is that the way we're known in the community? 
Is that the way people see us? Oh, people at Great Oaks, they love each other so much and they love other people so much that they're willing to sacrifice their time and their resources, their energy. And because of that, God's light is shown upon a darkened and cynical world. How brightly is your light shining these days? Are you involved in acts of compassion that have the result of causing people to say what a good God he is? Or has your light gotten kind of dim? I want to share with you this morning, to convince you, if you don't believe this to be true, I want to convince you of the reason why we need to do that, why that has to be who we are, and why it not only benefits what God wants to do, but it benefits you as well. So I want to talk about, for the time that remains, three fundamental reasons to arrange your life around the practice of acts of compassion towards others. Three changes that, will, that your good deeds will bring about. Number one is this. If you arrange your life around acts of compassion, it will change you. It will change you. Every time you, you do an act of compassion, it changes you a little bit. Martin, uh, and I don't know if I pronounced his name correctly, Sligelman, He's an American psychologist, former president of the uh, American Psychological Association, wrote a book called Authentic Happiness a few years ago. And in the purpose of the book, uh, it was part of a study to find out what it, what it was that causes authentic human joy and well-being and wholeness. See, I'm not necessarily Christian. He's just looking at the whole thing of well-being and wholeness. Because he came to this assumption looking around the world, he said most people tend to think that we, could, that we can be most happy if we just get more stuff. That we'd be more happy if we had more money, more sex, more chocolate, more success, more achievement, more stuff. More. That's what most people think because that's the way we pursue stuff in life. It's going to make us happy. And he said that being the case, the people with the most stuff should be the most happy. But he says it turns out that, that this gap between more and enough can never get bridged. More is never enough. And so he gave an assignment to his classes he teaches at the University of Pennsylvania. And he said that of all the, he asked all the students, he asked them to engage in two, two things intentionally. One, he wanted them to do something, engage in an activity that would just make them happy, they thought. Uh, engage in some, you know, whatever. Going out with friends, going, doing something that would make them happy, and afterwards journal about how they felt. And then he asked them to, to engage in one act of compassion and then write the reflections on these things. And the overwhelming, the overwhelming results were life-changing, he says. The afterglow of the pleasurable activity, hanging out with friends, watching a movie, eating a hot fudge sundae, whatever it was, paled in comparison with the effects of the act of compassion. Sligelman has found that when people are involved in acts of compassion, they become less self, they become less self-absorbed, they become less depressed, they become more tuned into others, more capable of empathy, they have a greater sense of community and a decreased sense of loneliness. Sounds kind of healthy, doesn't it? And he says it's very ironic that when people's primary focus is on doing something that will make themselves happy, more than likely they will get depressed over a period of time. But when they, and when they focus on giving themselves to others, they will get joy thrown into the bargain. When you get to the end of your life, the greatest memories you will have will not be the pleasurable moments you accumulated by yourself. They will be the ways that you spent yourself 
uh, to bless the lives of others. There will be the greatest memories you, ha- you have. So Jesus says, let your light shine. And it doesn't have to be real complex. You know, we sometimes think I have to do something big. Well, no, it doesn't have to be something big. It can be something small. A few years ago, and some of you might... Y'all YouTube groupies that watch all the videos on YouTube, that are the hottest things that are out there. Um, you may have seen this. There was a story a few years ago about a, about a high school in Ohio. And it was a young man named Jake Porter. And the story there, it's been shown, it's one of the most watched videos on YouTube, a top 100 or something like that, if you keep up with stuff like that. Um, but it's, it's an incredible video. And I was going to show it this morning, but it's 30 seconds, but it was kind of grainy and bad. And I said, ah, well, that doesn't really matter. So let me tell you about what it's about. A few years ago, there was, this, there was this young man named Jake Porter. He went to a high school in, in, uh, in Ohio, and he had a disorder called chromosomal fragile X, which means that he's cognitively challenged. And, 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 but he loves football. And so all the way through high school, he was, the, he was on the team, kind of. You know, they couldn't really let him do much because, because of, of his physical state, his mental state. He really couldn't function on a real high level, and so... He came out to all the practices. He would always work out with the team every day. He dressed in full gear for every game, even though he knew he would never get into the game. And, uh, he, and, and he would never play a down of real football because of his situation. He just couldn't function. He couldn't know what to play. But the last game of the season, his senior year, his coach, Dave France, wanted Jake to get into the game. And he wanted to play at least one down of football in his career, so he talked to the coach of the opposing team. He explained Jake's situation to him, and he said, I know this is kind of unusual, but I'd really like to have this experience. Would it be okay if the score is lopsided at the end of the game, which the coach knew it was going to be, because his team was not, Jake's team was not too good, and this other team was a powerhouse. He said, if it's, if it's really bad at the end of the game and it won't affect the outcome of the game, could we put Jake in for just one play? He said, we will practice this all week long. We'll have Jake take a hand off and take a knee, one knee to the ground, so that no one would risk hurting him. No one would have to worry about that. And the other coach said, yeah, that would be okay. Five seconds to go in the game. Jake's team is losing 42 to nothing. Sounds like a Metamora score half the time. I'm rooting for other teams this year to give them a little more game, okay? I know that's evil, but that's all right. Um, but Jake's team is losing 42 to nothing. It, it, it's, you know, and Jake's coach calls a timeout because his team has the ball and he's going to put Jake in the game for that one play. He's already talked to the other coach about it. Everything, everybody, everybody on the team knows what's going to happen. And the coach of the other team has already talked to his team as well. And all of a sudden, when he does this, the other coach comes running across the field. The opposing coach comes running across the field, and he's pointing and waving, and Jake, Jake's coach wonders, is he really upset about this? I mean, he's winning 42 to nothing. What's the big deal? What's going on? Is he kind of mad? And he goes to Jake's coach, and he says, you can put Jake in the game now. But I don't want Jake just to get in the game. I want him to score. This is the opposing coach. So he said, oh, this is what I want you to do. He said, when you put him in the game, tell him to run, tell, tell, tell you and all your players to tell him to run through the line and we'll open like the Red Sea and he could run through. So Jake's coach and this other coach get on the field with the referees and tell him what's going to happen. Jake is oblivious to all the things that are going on because of his condition. And so Jake's coach goes over, he tells him what the play is going to be, he sends Jake into the game, the ball snap, he hands it off to Jake. And what happens next goes down in history in the state of Ohio. 
because Jake had practiced taking his knee so many times, he started to go down. But all of his teammates started screaming, Don't do it! Run for the goal! And they all started pointing, and you can see it on the video. They all started pointing toward that way, and then the other team started pointing that way. And the referees are pointing that way and running beside him. Jake doesn't know what to think, but he keeps running. He runs and he scores. He, he spikes the ball. You know, he's all jumping down. He thinks he's won the game. The beat bleachers explode. People are yelling and cheering and crying and hugging each other. You know, a lot of boys played in that game that played really well, but nobody cared about them. I mean, they care, but yeah, it wasn't a big deal. And no one would have known what happened after that. After that, that, that word got out what happened, that act of compassion, that small act of letting Jake score. And what happened was it became a huge, huge thing. And people all over the state of Ohio, first and around the world, started talking about it. He got an ESPY award for that. Jake was you know what the ESPYs are? For those of you who are a sports fan, ESPN gives an award for the greatest sports event of the year. He was on the ESPY award show that year. He was on Oprah. He was on about 15 different shows. And everybody was talking about this. And they, Jake didn't have a clue what was going on. But everybody, because they had this act of compassion, it became huge. And began people talking and thinking about the effect of that one small act of compassion. You see, anytime you, you engage in an act of compassion, it doesn't have to be huge. When you stop in your business and just listen to somebody who's hurting, when you, when you take the time to be kind to someone, you know, like the guy in the restaurant, you know, that waits on you, buses your table, and you look at him as the guy doesn't speak English very well. And he might be 40 years old, and you don't really know much about him, but you probably know he's probably a father of a, couple, a bunch of kids, and he's here, he's probably working three minimum wage jobs, and he's trying to make a do, and we just kind of ignore him because, you know, we're, we're the wealthy, we're, we're the people who have the stuff, and, and we just ignore him and don't act, don't act like he's a person. But when we take the time to, to recognize him, to speak to him, that one small act of compassion, it changes who we are. Anytime you engage in an act of compassion, you change a little. Your heart gets a little larger, your light shines a little brighter, and we begin to build a city on a hill that that the light cannot be hidden from. And Jesus staked everything upon that. But let me tell you this, it's not just compassion when you do it that changes you, it also changes, number two, when you devote yourself to acts of compassion, you change the world one person at a time. The reality is we live in a world that desperately needs what you and I can give to them, quite apart from the fact that compassion enhances our life. Because so many of our lives, we live very comfortable lives. It's so easy and so tragic for us to shut our eyes so often and not see the needs of the world. But we have to look. We have to open our eyes. We have to do this. This is the real serious. Um, Next year sometime, I'm not sure when, we're looking at this. I'm going to do a series uh, based upon a book that is based upon scripture it's called The Hole in the Gospel. The Hole in Our Gospel. It's not that the gospel has a hole in it, but we have sometimes left a big... There's 2,000 verses in scripture that deal with justice and compassion and mercy. We very rarely talk about those in the church. And this book was written by Rich Stearns, who is the uh, president of World Vision. New book that came out not long ago, a, few, a couple of years ago. I've been reading that book. Can't put it down. Story after story after story of what God has done 
through Rich and through World Vision and other organizations around the world like it. But one of the things, one of the statistics that kind of caught me, for, that, that uh, let me just give you one example of opening our eyes. Sub-Saharan Africa is more heavily affected by HIV and AIDS than any other region of the world. Did you know that? You probably knew that already. An estimated 22.4 million people are living with HIV in the region, Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, around two, and that's around two-thirds of the global total for AIDS and HIV, all in one region of Africa. In 2008, around 1.4 million people died from AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa, and 1.9 million people became infected with HIV. And since the beginning of the epidemic, more than 14 million children have lost one or both parents to HIV-AIDS in that region. In seven nations in southern Africa, more than 20% of the population is affected. That would be the equivalent in the United States uh, if, we, if we would have the same percentage of around 50 million people in our country. I don't know what life would look like if we had that kind of epidemic in America, but I know it would affect us greatly. But because it's across the sea in a, in a third world country or in third world countries, so often we don't pay a lot of attention to it. Franklin Graham, you all know who Franklin Graham is. Franklin Graham said in an interview in Christianity Today that many churches have essentially responded, not in these words verbally, but have essentially responded, see, if you had just behaved yourself sexually, this would never have happened. It's, uh, it's, it's your own fault. You know, as of course we've never sinned. As if millions of children being infected and millions of others who have lost their moms or dads are of no concern to us, but they are. They've got to be. Challenge you sometime. I mean, this next year we're probably going to read the book because I'm going to do a series on it. But the first chapter, Rich Stearns tells a story about going to one of those countries and how it affected him forever. Let me ask you a question. Anybody here ever hear, hear of a child complain about the food they have to eat? I think we need to send us and all of our children to that place. You know, we forget our, because of our problem. Most of us don't have the problem of not eating enough. We have a problem eating too much, right? I'll admit that. But we forget that for the majority of people in this world, the food problem is not that they're eating too much, but they simply don't have enough to live. Even in America, even in America, 12 million children in our country that is so lavishly gifted and blessed or what food experts call food insecure. They don't have enough food every day to get their minimum daily requirements in their lives. 12 million children in America. The other day, and I know it's late, so I'll, I'll try to wrap this up in the next 25 minutes. Um, every, you know, the other day a lady came to talk to us here at church, and she talked about the needs here locally, and she said, you know, this is something we're doing out at uh, Low Point Washburn. She said the school out there, I don't know if you know this or not, Low Point Washburn School District, 50% of the kids that go there are, on, are, are, below the, are considered below the poverty level enough to get free lunches. That's not in another. That's not in Sub-Saharan Africa. That's down the street. I, and I have a feeling that's that same thing. Is that there's some percentages like that in some other areas very close by. The thing is, is that you know, 24,000 people in our world will die today from hunger-related causes, and 24,000 more people will die tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day from not having enough food. 
You see, and sometimes because it's a reality, it's possibly so overwhelmed by the sheer scale of human suffering and misery, misery, we don't think we can do anything about it, but God calls us to be a light on a hill, to do what we can do one person at a time. And the cool thing the lady was telling us, this lady, that they've already developed a low point, good thing, low point washburn's covered. They have a program there that they have at the school district there for the kids there. Any kid that is, um, that they found out that many of the kids that, that are on free lunches, that when they go home for the weekend, guess what happens? They don't get enough food for the weekend. So they developed a plan which is called Snack Packs for Kids, and they sent home every Friday, every child who applies for it and family applies for it there, they can get a free snack pack at least for one meal, one healthy meal on the weekend while they're away. They can't cover everything, but at least it gives them a little bit more. Now, does that make a dent in the big picture? Yeah, little dent. The thing is, is God doesn't call us to, to sit around and, 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 you know, think about the bigger. He says there's this big picture. We need to, to meet the need. He's, that's what he says. We're to be the light on the hill. So when you devote yourself to acts of compassion, you change the world one person at a time. But also, I don't know if you thought about this. This is the last point. When you engage in acts of compassion, not only do you change, not only do you change one life at a time, but when you engage in acts of compassion, it does something for the heart of God. It does something for the heart of God. It blesses God. One of the things that I was unprepared for when I became a parent was this. I became, I I really was not aware of the extent to which my heart was to be bound up with my children. I remember driving home from the hospital with Kara, who's sitting in the back of the church this morning, who has a, we have a grandson now, so it's a few years ago that this happened. But I was driving home from the, from the hospital, and I thought about how small and how fragile she was. And I thought about, and I drove different after that for a while. You know, I mean, it used to be I'd drive with one hand on the steering wheel, drive 56 in a 55 mile an hour zone. Yeah, <laughs> at least 56 of the 55 mile an hour. You know, I do that kind of stuff. And man, when she came along and then my son came along, I was different because all of a sudden it affected who I was. And I really started some things changed in my life as well. I, when, you know, when someone hurts my children, boy, you hurt me. And I'm going to be in your face. And when somebody helps my children, you help me. If you want to do something good for me, Today's my birthday, by the way. Okay, no, don't. I'm just telling you, if you want to do something good for me, do something good for my kids. Okay, that's more important to me than doing something for me. And those of you who are parents know what I'm talking about. That how your heart is bound up with your kids. And Jesus says that that you take that dynamic, that dynamic of how our heart's bound up with our kids, which is, uh, you know, and we multiply that by an infinity because all of us are his kids. And we start to see some inkling of what happens in the heart of God when someone blesses or fails to bless a single human being. And I love the parable, which I don't have time to talk about today. Uh, the most sobering of all of Jesus' parables, he says at the end of time, it will be like there will be a king who stands for God in the story and who separates all of humanity into two groups, the sheep the sheeps and the goats, in Matthew 25 is where it's at. And, and he, says, he says, and he tells this story, he says, For when I was hungry, you gave me... Don't worry about putting it up there, okay? Uh, For when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. And he goes through all these things. And the person's asked, well, when did we do this? He said, when you did it for the least of these. 
But then in the next few verses are a sobering part. That's the sobering part of it because the next few verses, verses 41 through 46, it says, when you have not done it for these, you've not done it for me. It breaks the heart of God when his people who are called, who are resourced, we don't do something with our resources in a way that's responsible and we use them only for us. Jesus said this, go to the last slide, let your light shine, let your light shine. How, how bright do we want it to be? Well, let me, let me just close with this story. Um, I've kind of told a portion of this back a while back, but I found some more information about this. There is a museum on Nantucket Island that is devoted to a volunteer organization that got formed centuries ago. And it was a fascinating to read the story about this, but in those days, traveling by sea was real dangerous given the real rocky coastline there and the nature of ships and storms and so on. And so a little group of people, volunteers, they banded together to go into the life-saving business because they got tired of so many lives being lost close to shore there off the Massachusetts um, shore. And so they banded together to form what was called the Humane Society. True story. And they built these little huts all along the shore, all along the shore of the coast there. And if you've ever been up to New England, the coast is rocky and rough. It's not real great. It's not, you know, it's not real great. You wouldn't go to the beach there too often. And they built these little huts, and they dotted along the shore, and, and they filled them with boats and equipment, and they called these huts huts of refuge. And there was somebody in those huts of refuge all the time watching the sea. And when a ship would go down, the the call would go out and people would come running and they would devote themselves, everything they had, everything they could to save every life possible. And they did it for no money, no recognition, no pats on the back, just because they prized human life so much. And they were always watching. And to remind them how seriously they took this task, to remind themselves of what was at stake, they, they had that while they would risk so much, they adopted a motto. And the motto was this, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. Now, that's a motto that will draw people to, you know. But let me tell you, that motto did not stop people from joining because they, real, they valued human life so much. And it's a sobering thing to read the accounts of people who would risk everything, even their lives, to save people they had never met. Who would, could, would just spend day after day after day in little huts of refuge as volunteers, looking for somebody going down, for somebody they could help. That's humanity. But over time, things changed. And after a while, the U.S. Coast Guard came along and started to take things, take over their task. And for a little while, they worked side by side with the Coast Guard. But eventually the idea came that, that carried the day was let the professionals do it, the Coast Guard. They're better trained. They get paid for it. And the volunteers stopped manning their little huts, and they stopped, stopped searching the coastline for sinking ships, and they stopped sending out teams to rescue drowning people. They just stopped. And it's a funny thing, though, that even after they stopped, they could not bring themselves to disband. And the life-saving society still exists today. They meet every once in a while in Boston to have dinners. They hand out awards for things like community service. They enjoy each other's company. They're just not in the life-saving business anymore. 
They don't man the little huts of refuge and scour the coastline for somebody who might be going down that they could save. They simply have lost sight of the vision of why they are there. And that happens all the time in our world. Maybe people who were once had a tender heart towards God and towards God's calling get themselves just too busy. We get busy with our careers. We get busy with our schedules. We get busy with a list of 100 things to do. Most of all, we get busy with things that are about us. And we get preoccupied with bills to pay and ladders to climb and resumes to build and stuff to buy and forget that we're still in a life-saving business. But God says if you're a human being and a world is troubled and as dark as ours is, then your calling, our calling as a church, our calling as individuals is to be in the life-saving business. And you're going like, well, I can't do it all, but you can't do this one thing. You can, you can let your light shine. It doesn't have to be huge. We're going to talk about this this year a lot. We're going to talk about how you can do that here in this community and throughout the world. You see, Jesus' desire for his church is to be a little hut of refuge that stands on the coastline and is filled with people who scour the, the region to see, well, who is going down and is there something I can, is there somewhere I can help? So I'm asking you today to begin to pray and ask God for a bigger heart and tell God, yeah, I want my light to shine. We're going to sing a song as we close this morning. This song is a song about restoration. And you know, restoration of our hearts and our souls does not come by getting more. It comes by giving more. And until we become those kinds of persons, our soul will not be restored. We will not be the people that God wants us to be. But I'm encouraged by this. I see signs from time to time, little pieces where people are, hearts are changed. And so this morning, let's, let's stand together and we're going to sing this closing song, Restoration. It's a song of commitment, asking God. It's a, cry, it's a heart cry to God about, God, restore me and help me. But remember that to do that, he must open our hearts for others around us. That's where it begins, to have the heart of God, to be a light that shines in a darkened world. Pray about this week, what your role in that light, what your role in, in, in this world is, where your light needs to shine. And if you begin to pray back at God will begin to show you. And then you just take the next step. Let's stand together and sing. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.